The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to talk about the evolutionary image of man. Tonight, we're going to be reading from a Stanford Institute study called Changing Images of Man, which was put together by some very prominent social controllers. Back in 1974, they compiled this research together into book form, and this has been a tool for the technocrats and for the social engineers and controllers of this world since then as to how best to shape the views of the future of mankind. And it's all relating to the image of man, how man sees himself in the universe, what his place is, what he thinks of himself, these kind of ideas. So understanding that, we'll get into the reading here because this is a really interesting one tonight, folks, because you'll see a lot of the writing on the wall that has come to fruition since this was originally put together back almost 50 years ago. They've used it like a playbook to change our society. So let's read. We're reading in chapter six of this book. The feasibility of an integrative evolutionary image of man. We have postulated a set of characteristics that an emergent image of man in the universe would need in order both to be adequate to the challenges of the future and also to be compatible with our historical past. How feasible is it that such an image might come to dominate world society in the near future? We propose to address this question here in two parts. First, we shall examine the conceptual feasibility. Mathematicians use what they term an existence theorem. It is enough to show that solutions can exist if you find even one. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, this is kind of a moot point at this point here, but uh, I, I figure I will point out the revelation of the method that they use for the various things they do. Because you see here, it says, according to this study, Mathematicians use what they term as an existence theorem, and this existence theorem postulates that it is enough to show that solutions can exist if you can find even one solution to any given problem. This was revealed in a bit of predictive programming in the movie Avengers Endgame, and also concurrently Avengers Infinity War. Remember when the when Dr. Strange said there was only one possible situation in which they win out of over 14 million different ways that he postulated that he looked at out of the future scenarios, this is a form of revelation of the method. They understand that if there is even an infinitesimally small probability of a solution being feasible for whatever problem it is that the elites of this world are facing, that they have a chance you see, and that they can, in fact, utilize mathematics to come to this proposed solution to the problem. So this is a revelation of the method 
type of a situation here being presented to us in no uncertain terms. They told us how they operate. So they use advanced mathematical algorithms, complicated algorithms and computers, supercomputers, to calculate what the variable probabilities of certain outcomes are. And they manipulate outcomes in this way. And this is what's admitted right here. They laid that down right here with this existence theorem. The idea of using existence theorem to generate the image of man that they want for the future of humanity. So let's continue reading from there, just keeping that in mind. <clears throat> in that spirit, we discuss one sort of image of man that appears to meet the conditions laid down in the preceding chapter. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. Remember, we're reading from chapter 6 about the feasibility of an integrative evolutionary image of man. So they discussed prior some of the prior images of man that were used to steer culture and society, and they speculated as to possible or probable future images of man that can be used in order to steer the behaviors of society. And now they're putting these together into the form of what they think is the best method moving forward. And we're seeing the results of that in the world today. But let's continue reading here. Then in the second section, we will examine the operational feasibility of replacing past images of man with a new and emergent one. The conceptual feasibility of a new image of man. Thus, the possible construction of a new image and the testing for conceptual feasibility will be examined first. The elements of a new image. It would be impossible to cite all the contributions that influenced the envisioning of the composite image described below. However, the ways of thinking or imagining or imaging, excuse me, the ways of thinking or imaging contained in the following works stand out as having had a particular significance in this exploration. And he goes on here, the author here, well, this is various authors contributed to this work. They go on to list a variety of sources, and I'll just read some of those for you. Uh, one source is by a gentleman named Laszlo, who wrote in 1972 something called General Systems Thinking. And he says, but in particular, the hierarchical relationships of ascending levels of consciousness and the process hierarchical restructuring various past theories and images of the judeo-christian darwinian and freudian behaviorists the metaphor of the human biocomputer written by lily in 1972 and i'm going to pause for a second there folks this is a hugely important one for them the metaphor of the human biocomputer and this this guy uh, lily wrote about this in 1972. He wrote a number of books and papers about this idea of the human being being comparable to a computer, a biocomputer, and thus able to be programmed. But let's read on here. So here's some of the other sources that they cite as being inspiration for this, this uh, work that they put together. The postulation of state of consciousness-specific theories needs, knowledge, processes, and modes of explanation, as put down by writers such as Cantor, Maslow, Hubbard, and Kohlberg. The vision of continuing evolution of man, in the social sense, done 1971. Culturally, written by Margaret Mead in 1964, who was a participant in this study. Spiritual, by Chardin in 1939, and Integrative, by Aurobindo in 1963. 
The Perennial Philosophy, written by Huxley in 1945, and various occult writings. They, they credit various occult writings. Uh, so that being the case, we could see that they most certainly are not ignorant of the occult or these occult philosophies, and that'll pr prove itself out as we get further in this document here because they utilize these concepts. Absolutely they do, the occult concepts. The Process of Transformational Discovery, as in the Monomyth by Joseph Campbell, 1956, Cultural Revitalization by Wallace, 1956, and in the work of Toynbee, Young, and Eliot, as described in The Experiment in Depth by Martin in 1955. So these various figures that they've named have had a massive influence here, and we recognize many of these names, Toynbee, Young, Huxley, <laughs> all of these same players all the time. Maslow, Maslow is the one that came up with the uh, hierarchy of needs for human behavior. So let's see. So they use they use many of these theories to put together a control system of sorts on how to create the future image of mankind that they're looking for. This evolutionary image of mankind. So they have here a, a, a method that they call the gradient, and it shows a number of theories about the nature of the human being and their underlying images that they will attempt to show can be integrated into a more holistic image or theory of humankind. If this attempt proves successful, each composite part would come to be seen not as erroneous, but rather as having its own validity, albeit a restricted one, as seen from the perspective of the whole. going to pause for a second here, folks. So the, the various parts, from the perspective of the whole, the whole unit will have their own bit of validity. See, they're looking at the big picture, the overall picture. And even though the constituent parts or constituent models they give may not make sense on their own, when combined with the other ones, it could create a type of control structure. This is called cybernetics theory, folks. This is exactly the methodology they use to steer social behavior and we're going to read into some of the methods that they use here and one of them is the concept they call the gradient so let's read on here first it is useful to introduce the concept of gradient and see how it applies to the systemic properties of existence by gradient we mean simply the grade or ascent a series of transitional forms states or qualities connecting related extremes it is widely recognized that each succeeding level of biological and social evolution forms a hierarchical gradient of interacting levels of increasing complexity and order. The various scientific disciplines reflect this ordered series, from phylogenesis to ontogenesis to sociogenesis, from such disciplines as physics, chemistry, genetics, and physiology to ethology, psychology, sociology, and anthropology, and to such newly emerging system disciplines as systems theory, otherwise known as cybernetics, and the policy sciences. Some type of gradient should similarly be recognizable with regard to the higher aspects of human existence. In biological evolution, as each higher-level system emerges, it brings with it capacity to order chemical reactions in an increasingly coherent and purposive manner. 
Similarly, with social and cultural evolution, where, for example, ethical norms order or channel the energies associated with more primitive processes, such as anger, in keeping with higher needs, or where immediate gratification is postponed in order to obtain a greater gratification at some future time. And then it goes on to quote a gentleman named Weiskopf from a book in 1971. Three principles are enunciated in this approach. One, the dimensions of existence form a hierarchy of lower and higher levels or dimensions. Two, the higher dimension, although resting on the foundations of the lower ones, cannot be understood in terms of the principles governing the lower ones. It receives its meaning from the higher dimension, which integrates the particulars of the lower dimension into a new emerging gestalt. Three, the highest level is the realm of the normative or of the moral sense of the standards of value. And that was, as I said, from Weiskopf, 1971, page 186 from a book that he wrote. And what it's explaining here, essentially, is occult definitions of things. So you see, they talk about dimensions of existence, a hierarchy, now, we've explored these ideas looking through Rosicrucian teachings and various other ones, how they talk about this hierarchy of these different worlds that interact with man and man interacts with. And these people who put together the this book, The Changing Images of Man, and the, this social policy that was stemmed from this Stanford research study, they acknowledge this, they understand this, and they implement ideas based upon that, as pointed out right there. So let's continue reading here, and we'll see what else they tell us. An analogy to computer programming may be a helpful illustration at this point. The gradient in the human biocomputer. The real power and flexibility of the modern computer is found not in its hardware, but in its software. The gradient series of ever more general symbolic programs that make it feasible to use the computer for vastly different functions. The basic functioning of a computer requires one instruction for each operation that is carried out, and while programming at this machine language level is in principle very flexible, it requires too much time to prepare special purpose programs for different applications. Rather, it has been found useful to create a hierarchical series of macro programming languages where a single instruction at one level generates a score or more detailed instructions at a more basic level. The utility of the computer metaphor of human functioning is illustrated below, and they give us a little table here. At the lower machine language end of the human biocomputer are such processes as genetic inheritance, instinctual endocrine and automatic processes, semantic and cultural determinism, all of which we have some degree of subconscious awareness of, and as the experience of yoga, hypnosis, and biofeedback training suggests, all of which we can to some extent reprogram, and I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Listen to that again. The experience of yoga, hypnosis, and biofeedback training suggests that we can, to some extent, reprogram those different aspects of our human consciousness. You see, being as how we're a type of a biocomputer, according to these people, correct? 
So that's what they're saying. They're saying through these occult disciplines that we have some semblance of being able to possibly reprogram on a certain level some of our more subconsciously controlled or unconsciously controlled mechanisms of the human body. And there were many studies done on this. There was a, you know, a CIA-sponsored program called Stargate Program, of which there were several sub-programs underneath it, which explored topics such as astral projection, the ability to see faraway places, the ability to uh, do these various types of things through biofeedback and other mechanisms here. They've studied this stuff in scientific studies. So, with that being known here, we could see they, they still consider the human being to be on par with a biocomputer. And if it's on par with a computer, it can be programmed. And they've acknowledged that uh, through different methods like hypnosis and biofeedback and such, they can reprogram it to a certain degree. Now, that's just talking about autonomic functions of the body, you see. But let's read on here. At a higher level, that of normal waking awareness, the executive function of the human biocomputer manifests awareness of the self, and as part of the self-awareness, believes that it con is constantly capable of choice and of reprogramming itself, i.e. that it has freedom. Just how much freedom of choice exists at this level is somewhat problematical, however, for as Lilly in 1972 has pointed out, there are still higher-level meta-programs to which the human biocomputer is subject. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is where we get to the meat of the matter in this text. Pay very close attention to what's being said here. If you think you practice free will, if you think you make your own choices and decisions, if you believe that, you may be fooling yourself. That's not to say that we don't make our own choices and decisions. I think to some extent we do. But we are heavily manipulated in a very scientific-type program here by this technocracy in charge, as we will get to here right now. Because even if the human biocomputer metaphor is not exactly 100% aligned with the truth of things, it's a close enough model that they could determine some controls with that model. So pay attention. This is the important part, and I'm going to continue reading. If such metaprograms, the basic beliefs, images of self, others, and the universe, influence from subconscious and the superconscious aspects of self, determine the criteria for choice, then there is, in fact, very little true freedom of choice unless access to these levels can be obtained. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. So these metaprograms that Lily speaks of, they consist of these things, and it had said this in parentheses there. The basic beliefs, images of self, others, and the universe, influence from subconscious and the superconscious aspects of self. They determine your criteria for choice. So Lily says that uh, if somebody has access to those levels, those superconscious levels, those superconscious aspects of self, then they have this freedom of choice. If somebody else has access to that, though, and the average person does not, then they have very little freedom of choice. You see, that's the whole connotation being made here. Let's read on. 
We have only the most rudimentary maps for these aspects of the self, but they must be incorporated into any image of humankind adequate for the future. To the extent that a linear dimension of lower and higher is valid, however, and we will later discuss limitations of this approach, it would seem that it is the lower quasi-conscious or unconscious aspects of man that are operative through the functioning of instinctual energies, and that's according to Freud, and operant conditioning, according to Skinner, and conversely, the higher levels are those to which esoteric wisdom refers and from which the intuitive sources of creativity most likely stem. The Italian psychiatrist Roberto Assagioli has formulated a map that depicts these various domains of consciousness in a useful way. Gonna pause for just a second here, folks. So you see how they incorporate these occultic principles, these secret society school teachings, these uh, hidden secrets of the ages, the esoteric. They combine this with modern psychiatry and psychology, invoking the ideas of Freud and Skinner, and they compare the human being to a programmable computer. And they think that they can achieve this as long as they use the proper or appropriate image to impress upon man's mind to make these changes culturally and socially within people on a broad level. So you see here, it says that even though there's some limitations on these methodologies, if they choose the appropriate or correct model of the image, the future image of man that they want, this evolutionary model, of the image of man, then they could possibly steer the future society that they want. They could influence people's behaviors in various ways with this. So this is a stark admission here. The, the admission that things like archetypes and mythological representations can be used in a subjective way to steer human consciousness in certain directions, make people uh, behave in certain ways, influence people's behaviors. That's what this is all about, okay? So let's read on here. So next below it says, The Gradient of Human Needs. Maslow in 1962 described a gradient that parallels the above as being manifest by persons with different levels of need fulfillment. He noted that persons who have adequately fulfilled their basic physical and emotional needs act from a very different type of motivation than do those who have not. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. Now, a lot of this sounds commonsensical, and it is commonsensical, but here's the whole basic premise here. If you are hungry, if you do not have food, if you do not have water, if you do not have your basic needs for physical survival, that is first and foremost in your mind if you're in this survival type state. Why do you think they try to keep people in poverty and keep people down? You're more easily controlled that way. All they have to do is offer you the food that you need for whatever you agree, whatever price you agree to give up for that. And it might not be an actual monetary price might be something else. Might be giving up freedoms, giving up choices, giving up your ability to take care of yourself, giving up various things, you know, handing over your body for the name of science, giving yourself over for a, a medical experiment. You see, if, if they 
can enact this upon you. They act upon this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They understand if they strip you down to the bare minimum and have you in survival mode, they got you where they want you, because all they have to do is dangle that carrot in front of you that you need for your survival, and they can manipulate you in that way. They could make whatever type of arrangement they want with you for you to get that need fulfilled. And you will do it just because you need to to survive if you have no other alternative. And that is one of the key methods that they use for controlling societies. What do you think this whole scarcity agenda is all about all of a sudden? Uh, you know, the, the whole uh, logistics and supply chain crisis and the, the uh, impending food crisis and the railroad strikes. Everything's a crisis these days, isn't it? Everything. Why do you think everything's a crisis? Because this is a control mechanism, you see. Whether it's a real crisis or a contrived crisis, they use it to their advantage to steer you in the direction that they want to get from you that thing that they want from you. And it might not be just money, as most people are conditioned to believe. But let's continue reading here. Very simply stated, deficiency needs are those which, if not fulfilled, will eventually lead to illness or to death. Their non-fulfillment causes the deprived person to act at lower levels of functioning, as we have portrayed on a table here below. Growth being wisdom, needs, on the other hand, are the needs whose fulfillment provides a sense of meaning for existence, aesthetic or spiritual delight. Non-fulfillment brings not illness, but rather a sense of boredom or apathy, assuming that the deficiency needs are adequately met. Now, I'm going to pause for another second here, folks. So they're saying these emotional needs that we have, uh, these needs for growth, wisdom, and being, these needs, if we do not get these needs met, then we will have a sense of boredom or apathy. We live in an extremely apathetic society right now, don't we? Complacency. You see, it's all by design. They don't want us being fed spiritually. They don't want us growing. They don't want growth-oriented people. They don't want spiritual growth-oriented people. They don't want people acquiring wisdom, attaining wisdom, using their intuition, gaining knowledge of various things. You see, they want you stagnant so that you can be controlled, so that you're bored, you're complacent, and you then are apathetic. So you don't care what happens to your fellow man. Eh, meh. Isn't that the attitude these days? Meh. A about everything. It's sad, but this is all based upon Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is basic psychology in the modern era. They understand this, and they apply this, and they, they apply the occult principles that they know of to this as well. Where do you think psychology came from? It was born directly out of occult philosophy. People don't realize that. We've gone through and done shows on that. I've, I've shown where it comes from and how it aligns very heavily with communism, our modern psychiatry and psychology we've been handed. It aligns with communist principles. It aligns with Marxist theory, you see. And they've done this on purpose. They've, they've married the two together in the early beginning stages of the birth of modern psychology so that these these things underlie all of it and it's all based upon these hierarchies of needs you see which apply the cybernetics principles to things here 
Because if you don't have your very basic needs met, then these higher needs are not fulfilled either. And these higher needs only get fulfilled if your basic needs are fulfilled first. See, there's the order of operations here. Basic needs fulfilled, then your psychological needs are fulfilled. And if they could substitute something instead of spiritual growth, if they could substitute entertainment in its various forms, then they've got you. They will substitute this, and this will somewhat fulfill some of your basic needs that you have for growth, being, or wisdom, as they call it here, if you're entertained enough. It's a very shallow and hollow type of growth, though, and a very shallow and hollow type of existence. But it does, to some degree or another, replace that spiritual yearning in a person, if they yearn after more entertainment choices. That's why they give us the model of the Roman bread and circuses. That's what we have in society. Bread, the food, your basic needs for survival. Circuses, entertainment, something to take the place of that spiritual growth factor in your psychological being. So these are the hierarchy of needs. And once they fulfill those needs, then they could steer you in various directions with their programming here. Let's continue reading and see what else they have to say. It was Maslow's hypothesis that most people move sequentially through a hierarchy of needs. Such movement likely occurs in two rather different modes. As Maslow emphasized, it can occur quite spontaneously. As one modal need type is adequately fulfilled, there is a natural tendency to grow and seek further. On the other hand, as noted by Claire Graves, another theorist who has developed the needs hierarchy theme, it can also occur or by be stimulated in crises. As one modal behavior style becomes dysfunctional, there is a tendency to seek another level of need fulfillment. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So we see why do they make everything a crisis? Well, because it's a way to artificially induce a dysfunction in this hierarchy of needs. And it causes a dysfunction in people's behavior, and it modifies their behavior in certain ways so that they will seek to fulfill these needs that are now going unfulfilled. Do you get that? This is the, the, the reason why they, they pull things like the, uh, the scamdemic that they have the past couple of years. The crisis. Let's read that sentence again, just so you get the idea. On the other hand, as noted by Claire Graves, it can also occur or be simulated in crises. As one modal behavior style becomes dysfunctional, there is a tendency to seek another level of need fulfillment. Did you get your shot? <laughs> Do you see what's going on with that? Let's, let's continue reading here because next they talk about the gradient of human morality. Still another similar gradient series, this time having to do with ascending degrees of moral thinking and acting, has been derived from a gentleman named Kohlberg in 1969. In both cross-cultural and domestic studies, Kohlberg found that the dominant form of morality tends over time to follow a definite hierarchical progression. This is true because of whole cultures and of the individual within the culture until he reaches or surpasses the dominant form in his culture. Like the hierarchy of needs, these stages also form a gradient, as depicted in a table here below. 
So Hampton Turner, 1971, has suggested that each of the dominant social sciences has a hidden morality that can be located in one of Kohlberg's categories, and that although most social sciences claim to eschew metaphysics, they make unverifiable moral assumptions that significantly affect their choice of methodology and criteria of validation. Hampton Turner concludes that only those social sciences that are consistent with Kohlberg's stage 6 have the demonstrated capacity to move from paradigm to paradigm, which says stressing congruence between and reconciliation silly ability of perspectives despite dialectical tension and i'm going to pause for a moment there folks a lot of big college level words in that sentence huh uh, essentially what they're saying here is the social sciences that they utilize here have what they call hidden morality in them which means nothing other than exactly what it sounds like there's really no morality to the methods that they use it's all very subjective, you see. It's that whole ideology, once again, where they throw the absolute moral standards out the window. There's no absolute standard of right and wrong in these people's view. It's moral relativism. So these methods employ moral relativism. That's what they're claiming when they say it's got a hidden morality. They're justifying their actions based upon moral relativism. Oh, it, it, it's, it's good for this situation, but not that one, you see. So that way they could pick which methodologies that they use here to adequately change people's behaviors. And they don't, they don't uh, worry about the moral implications thereof because it's all relative, right? It's this hidden morality. They have their own sense of morality, these socialists and, you know, social controllers, social engineers of this world. It's all about engineering mass behavior change in people. And it's about engineering this new image of man for the future. Let's continue reading here. The relevance of a gradient of awareness for an adequate image. What is the common characteristic of the various gradients we have reviewed? Recalling the operational definition of consciousness, and it says in parentheses, the organization of the biosystem with awareness as the psychological equivalent or complementary aspect of that organization, it seems reasonable to cast the image of ascending stages of evolution in terms of a gradient of awareness. As we come to higher stages of evolution, the attribute of consciousness comes to the fore. By this, we mean the discovery of relationships and the making of choices, both individually and collectively, on the basis of understanding, appreciation, and judgment, and being influenced by a relevant context with its past, present, and future, rather than being determined by instinct, habit, or some authority from another time and place. In this sense, we speak of the evolution of consciousness manifest in hierarchical restructuring of our own conceptions and the derivative systems of thought, institutions, etc., through which we achieve coherent integration at higher orders of differentiation and complexity. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Oh, they like to use these big, long, grandiose words, don't they? <laughs> they really do. Essentially, what they're saying here is, yeah, these old religious ideals and stuff that mankind clings to need to go. 
That's essentially what they're saying. We need to evolve. You see, we, we need to get to this next higher level, this higher spiritual paradigm. And to do that, we need to leave these systems behind, you see, because that's what's holding us back. These derivative systems of thought and institutions, and we need to be able to get past that. That's what they're saying here. We need to be able to determine our own choices, make our own future, build our own spiritual evolution. You see, it's all pertaining. It's, this is all the language used by the transhumanists, folks. That's essentially what's being talked about here in a kind of beating around the bush kind of way. They're talking about the transhumanist notion of things. Self-guided evolution. That's what they're speaking of. They want this for mankind. They think this is the image of the future for man. You see, that's why we're looking through this tonight. This is why they've used these methodologies to steer our behavior, to give us a modern-day mythology that hits upon these archetypal things in our minds and gives us this image of ourselves, this image of our place in the universe. You see, because these people... It, within the control structure here at the topmost places within the technocracy or the cryptocracy, whatever you want to call them. It's a combination of both, really. It's a technocracy based upon cryptocracy. Why, why do you think they call it cryptocurrency? Why, why is that a thing? It's, it's associated with technology, but it's cryptocracy, you see, because it's all about hidden motives and agendas and secrets. You understand? So... At any rate, and there's also those death ideas associated with the crypt, remember? So crypto, uh, the cryptocracy, the technocracy, one and the same thing. They operate on both of these systems. They combine these occult knowledges with the modern technological contrivances and our modern sciences. They're one and the same. It's two sides of the same coin, physics and metaphysics. Same coin, just the one side and the other. They acknowledge that here. This is, this is what I've been trying to convey to people. Don't think for a minute that people in these policy think tank groups that uh, steer social agendas and set down policy, that they don't understand these occultic principles. They very much do, and they use them. They understand metaphysics as well as physics, you see. They understand parapsychology as well as psychology. They understand the flip side of the coin as well as the face of the coin that we're used to being presented in our modern culture. They know how to work both angles and play the middle, the edge of the coin, right? For lack of a better analogy here. But at any rate, we can see that this is what they're talking about here. They understand that they need to change mankind's image of himself in order to change mankind in the future because this is how it operates and this is on an old occult principle the image it's all about thought and thought forms as we had discussed on previous shows here the thought first it manifests as an image an image in your mind first and then it can manifest perhaps as an image in the greater reality but before it comes to fruition and before it actually comes into manifestation here the image comes first so you change the image you change the man you see so to change the image of man is to change man 
And that's what they seek to do. And they use these subjective ideas like archetypes and mythologies, myth representations, to do this because it's not something that could be easily quantified. But they have found imprecise methods on how to do this, to change man's mind. You see, change man's mind, you change man. That's what they're doing. And that's what they use these methods for. And they're acknowledging this in this book. That's why this book is so important, but it's often overlooked. We have only briefly sketched some of the thinking that leads to this conception. Other contributions, which are in keeping with an ascending gradient of awareness in evolution, we have postulated this worldly or otherworldly and transworldly transformation elaborates this theme in more details than we can do here. Again, however, we are not here concerned whether these ways of thinking are right or wrong as judged by the methods of any one particular knowledge paradigm, but rather whether... Pay attention here, folks. This is the good stuff here, all right? I'm going to begin that sentence over again because pay close attention to the words here, all right? They have no qualms with whether something's right or wrong. Keep that in mind. Moral relativism, like I said. Again, however, we are not here concerned whether these ways of thinking are right or wrong as judged by the methods of any one particular knowledge paradigm, but rather whether, first, they give us a vision of potential growth and future further evolution beyond where we are now, a vision that accepts where, both in, as individual and as a species, we are now seeing ourselves now as being more highly evolved in some ways, less in others, than was earlier man, and less highly evolved than we hope future man will be. And secondly, they lay the conceptual beginnings of a general systems framework in which an integration of the various fragmented images of man, each of which can come to be seen as having a restricted validity, becomes possible. At this state of knowledge, then, we view the gradient of awareness more as useful metaphor than as proven theory. Indeed, as the review of limitations of sciences that were prevent, presented in Chapter 4 of this book makes clear, it is likely not possible to prove whether or not such a view is valid. Rather, we will have to estimate what results might flow from translating this as opposed to some other image of humankind, into concrete policies for the resolution of societal problems and the fuller realization of the human potentialities. So I'm going to pause right there. So did you hear that? So just as I had discussed, they understand that myth and archetype can affect human consciousness, and that this image that they generate of man, the image they give man of himself and his place in the universe, and the universe has an impression on man's mind. They understand this. They think it's imprecise, and it's not something that can be proven. So there you have that whole idea, once again, where they have plausible deniability in control here. Because, you see, there's, there's nothing that's really provable here on a concrete type quantifiable level, but they understand the influence that these types of thoughts have on mankind's brain, on his mind, you see. So that being the case, they have plausible deniability built into this. They could use it as an assumption, 
and they could make a pretty good model for control here. And that's why I say they could use some of these subjective ideas to make a model that's not 100% perfect, but it's good enough that it's usable to get some general types of results that they want from it. And that's what they do. That's why they compare man to a programmable biocomputer. It's not a 100% accurate model. I think we all realize that. We would argue, you know, that man is not like a computer in many ways. They understand that it's an imperfect model, but it allows them enough control mechanisms and control points that it can be effectuated as an effective system for controlling man's behaviors in certain ways. It's imprecise, but it's precise enough that they could get the general result they want. You see, especially on the mass psychology level, which works a little differently from individual psychology. So that's why they do this kind of thing. But let's get on here with more of the reading because there's a whole lot more I want to cover here tonight because this is important stuff. The self, a second key element in our attempt to discover a more adequate integrative image of man in the universe, concerns imagery regarding the nature of the self. In our culture, the dominant image which the person holds of himself is that of a separate and independent entity, as denoted by the very term self, defined by Webster's as, quote, the person having its own or a single nature or character, end quote. But even a cursory examination of the known facts of existence indicates that this is an unduly limited view as explained below. Transpersonal and Personal Imagery The most basic aspects of our being, which we have portrayed as being at the lower level, and it says in parentheses here, the machine language aspects of the human biocomputer. Going to pause for a second there, folks. Keep in mind, when they're talking about this stuff, they are most definitely keeping in mind the idea of what they refer to as the analogy here of the machine language aspects of the human biocomputer. They see us as being programmable in certain ways with these various images that they present us, you see. That's why the language of symbology is so important. And it's so overlooked and misunderstood by people. They don't get it. But it affects you on an unconscious level, you see. The machine language level of the human biocomputer. And I understand it's an analogy. And it is an analogy, but it's one that works. It's one that these people have utilized to control the masses. So it says here that uh, the most basic aspects of our being, which have we have portrayed as being the lower level or the machine language aspects of the human biocomputer, that we share in common with all other persons. Indeed, because of this commonality, one suspects that it is only this level which is usually comprehended in the phrase, quote, the nature of man, end quote. The next stage in developing an integrative image of humankind is explored below, in a figure below, which shows these aspects as being transpersonal rather than idiosyncratic to each person. 
Young's phrase, the collective unconscious, seems particularly appropriate for this level. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So they give a little diagram below of this hierarchy of order of where consciousness comes from, where it's derived from. And there's a transpersonal personal region of shared consciousness, it says here. And I guess Young would co call this the collective unconscious, right? And then it has the personal region where this is what we you know, consider ourselves. And then there's the lower transpersonal region, which is personal unconsciousness. See, the unconscious factors of, of mind. And it, it has a good breakdown here in this little chart. But at any rate, let's go ahead and continue reading here. Coming up the gradient of awareness, we observe the egoic and sensory level where there is a valid perception of separateness between persons. The behaviors that are unique to this level, such as our use of sensory channels to communicate with other humans across the spatial distance that separates us, are typically perceived as manifesting freedom in the sense of their being freely chosen behavior under the unique control of each person as a separate entity. But coming still further up our gradient of so-called awareness, we find, if the reports of the yogis, mystics, and some recent laboratory evidence are to be believed, that things once again become transpersonal in nature. Perceptions become intuitive and quasi-sensory rather than stemming from the usual senses, and typically as higher levels are reached, subjective experiences of mind-sharing are often reported, as are experiences of disconnectedness or transcendence from the usual constraints of time and space. Indeed, it is likely that only when we are able to expand our scientific image of man to include phenomena at this level will we be able to develop adequate theories to account for the various psychic phenomena reviewed in Chapter 4 of this book. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Like I said, these people are not ignorant of the occult teachings, the occult, the paranormal, the various... Uh, secret teachings of the fraternal brotherhoods, the secret society groups stemming from the ancient mystery schools, they're not unfamiliar with this stuff, okay? This was a Stanford Institute study. There were many people involved in this study. Margaret Mead was being one of the preeminent ones. Joseph Campbell was involved with this study, folks. This is the guy that uh, came up with the whole outline for the hero's journey, you see. The preeminent mythology teacher or person who best understood mythological archetypes in the 20th century, Joseph Campbell. So these people understood very well some of these occult philosophies in conjunction with modern science and different methodologies here. And they, they put it down. They broke it down in this way. They came up with this hierarchy, these various hierarchies of control mechanisms here. Essentially, that's what this is showing. It's control mechanisms for steering human behaviors in various ways. That's what they came up with, and that's what they outline in this book, and it's all about changing man's image of himself in the future to achieve certain things for not only the individual, but for the species, for the collective. Notice they use the word collective in some of these places here as well. But let's continue reading on. The schematized integrative image of the person shown in figure 9 is therefore cast in the shape 
of the hourglass or cone, thus connoting the ways in which one's nature is properly seen as transpersonal at the lower and upper reaches of existence and personal or unique in between. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So at each extreme end, it's what they call transpersonal, which means transcending personal. The collective, it's about the collective, you see, on both of the far ends of the spectrum here. In between, it's about the person. It's about individuals. But on the far fringes, it's about the collective. Why do you think our politics, our political parties, are designed that the, the way that they are? Why do you think the ideologies are so skewed? It's either extreme right or extreme left. Anything that falls in the middle, which re represents personal freedoms and individual choices gets heavily skewed so that you go with what the collective mentality or idea is, you see, because it's all about this transpersonal existence on either of the extreme ends of this spectrum. And that's what they're pushing for. That's why collectivism is a thing, especially when it comes down to the transhumanist idea of being able to merge your consciousness with a machine and be interdependent with the collective in the machine. You see, everybody's minds merge together in certain ways. The collective, the collective ideology. That's why they push this collectivism kind of thing. That's why they push these extremes on both sides of the aisle politically here, because that represents transpersonalism. That represents groupthink. You see, that's mass psychology. Whereas somewhere in the middle, if things fall in the middle, you have personal choices and freedoms. Individual choices and freedoms. And they can't have that if they're looking to change humanity at large, which is definitely what they're trying to do. So let's read on here. More speculatively, but based on anecdotal reports from various researchers in the phenomology of consciousness, we might add the symbol of infinity for the uppermost reaches of the map and the phrase to the beginnings of evolution for the lowermost. If the anecdotal reports are to be believed, infinity and the beginnings of evolution can be subjectively experienced and when experienced, tend to merge. So FHW or sorry, F.W.H. Myers has formulated a different but similar conception. So essentially what they're saying here is through various means you can experience the beginnings of evolution or infinity on the uppermost level scale. And this is through things like uh, meditation and through various other occult practices that they they come to this conclusion through these various philosophies taught by the secret society groups. Uh, so they claim that uh, at some point, if you know what you're doing, you use the right methods and stuff, maybe you could kind of disconnect a little bit and transcend into higher worlds and experience uh, some type of infinity or experience the beginning stages of evolution. So you could go up or down through the scale and experience things on a different level that transcends the self you see that's what they're talking about and it, a lot of it, it it sounds really hokey at points when they talk about this stuff but keep in mind this was a stanford institute study this was a a heavily uh, influential study that has ac actually acted as a roadmap for 
what's transpired here the past 50, 50-ish years. So keep that in mind. This is all about changing man's image of himself and using these subjective ways to do so. Mythologies, myth representation, archetypes, with things within the greater culture and the entertainment culture through this hierarchy of needs of sorts. So let's continue reading here because now we're going to get into the subsystem, the system, and the supersystem imagery. Now keep in mind, these have very occultic connotations to them, many of these things. They base these models upon these teachings from these secret society groups. This is how important this stuff is, folks. Okay, this, These are the models that they use for control. And most people are ignorant of this. They, they are unaware that these methods are being used, these models are being used. That these things that are taught in these secret society groups, they use them, and they use them to great effect. Okay, So they base a lot of their research and their methodologies on the secret teachings of these secret society groups and mystery schools. You see, that's why it's so important that we delve into this stuff. And it's admitted right here in this book. I mean, look at this stuff we're reading. This is a Stanford Institute study that has been used pretty much as a blueprint for social control here. It's a policy paper. This was a policy think tank. Okay, keep that in mind. They were looking to steer the future of mankind. They want to change man's image of himself and change the culture. Like I said, you change the image, you change the man. That's how it works. Let's read on, though. Subsystem, system, and supersystem imagery. The ways in which a person is a separate and distinct system are but a small part of the ways in which he incorporates lower-level subsystems and in which he is a part of a higher-order supersystem. Going to pause for a minute there, folks. You'll notice that they're referring to the human being or collective of human beings as systems. What is the science of systems control, particularly whole systems control? Cybernetics. This is a hugely important point that I, I try to tell people about all the time. Cybernetics is the methodology in which they use to steer agendas in this world. And most people are largely ignorant of cybernetics methodologies because we're taught to break everything down into little constituent subcategories. Everything gets categorized. Everything gets uh, separated out and put it in its own little box, and everything has its own specialization. These people look at the big picture. They determine the, the best and most effective control way mechanisms through looking at the big picture here. So they understand how to get things done in a holistic fashion rather than having little specializations here or using specialized knowledge at certain levels. They look at the big picture and come up with the most efficient and effective methods for controlling systems. Let's read on, though. Displaying both the independent properties of wholes and the dependent properties of parts, the person is a holon, H-O-L-O-N, and it's in quotation marks, holon. Remember that word, folks. This is very much a cybernetics term. 
Other dimensions could be added as well, but the, as the figure below shows, we now have the conceptual basis for a multi-dimensional systems-oriented image of person in the universe that is indeed integrative in the ways desired. Before completing this image, we might pause to ask the important question. If the experience of individuality is but a small slit in all there is to the totality of our existence, where is the essence of the human person, the being as opposed to the class, to be found? Echoing Kostler from 1967, where is the ghost in the machine? It is here that the image of humankind espoused in the perennial philosophy probably provides the best single answer. And it says here, the Atma, which if you're familiar with, you know, Eastern philosophies, that's an Eastern tradition, the Atma, the self, is never born and never dies. It is without a cause and is eternally changeless. It is beyond time, unborn, permanent and eternal. It does not die when the body dies. Concealed in the heart of all beings lies the Atma, the spirit, the self, smaller than the smallest atom, greater than the greatest aspects. And that's from the Upanishads from roughly 1000 BC. So this is what they're talking about when they're talking about personal and transpersonal. These ideologies, they, they speak very much about this stuff. These points that are brought about in theosophy, brought about by the secret society groups at all different levels, the Rosicrucian models, these are the things that they're basing their control structures on. These occult teachings and practices that have been kept hidden from the public. And this is probably the main reason why. This is what they do. This is how they use and manipulate these these types of things to control people. Understand? And if people have knowledge of this, then that gives them a sense of what's going on, how they've been manipulated. You see. And it's everywhere, all around you. I mean, once you start to see this stuff, you can't unsee it. The, the awakening process in this regards, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because you can't turn it off. You can't go back to the into the matrix again. <laughs> to use the analogy once you begin to see that that's it you, you can't unsee it. it it's just the way that it is but let's continue reading here finally then to represent this self that is in terms of space and time a not thing we complete the pictorial version of our proposed composite image of humankind by adding the center it might be represented by another shape but the tubular shape is often reported as the feel of those who experience meditation, and we agree in principle with Wilson in press that any adequate image will not be constructed, but rather seen through experience. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I don't know who Wilson is that they're talking about here, but uh, this is probably a true thing. Okay, So they're claiming that uh, anybody who does meditation or experiences meditation will say it, they often feel as if their consciousness is in this tube-type shape. Uh, some people will report like uh, the, the hourglass-type shape or a tube shape in this kind of thing, uh, where it, it's, it's just how you feel. I mean, it's just a sense that you have, that it, it's a contained type of a, a, uh, an experience, but you experience the 
everything else, the everything else within this state. Uh, but that's what they're trying to describe here. But then they also say they agree with the principle of this Wilson guy that any adequate image will not be constructed, but rather seen through experience. So this being seen through experience bit, this is where mythology and archetypes come in, you see. It's not something that could be readily constructed. They cannot construct this image for you, but they have to hint hint at or hit upon archetypes and mythological representations that are inherently known in the human mind and experienced in our day-to-day lives, experienced in the human experience, I guess is the best way to put it. Things that we, we go through in our human experience here will resonate with us. And this is what will allow this new image to be seen rather than constructed. And this is the huge point here. They understand this is not a quantifiable thing that could be easily put together. That's why they use some of these occult principles. They have to have these models of higher worlds and lower worlds that occur around us in order for them to understand how to present the archetype or the myth representation to us in order to influence our our minds in certain ways so that we see this image, you see. We experience this image rather than something that they construct because it's an individual process in all of us, but we have this transpersonal experience that goes with it. So they're trying to hit upon this transpersonal layer of human consciousness, of the human mind, the collective unconscious. And this is what does it. Archetypes, myth representations. That's how they could affect each and every person on a mass level. Controlling an individual is much more difficult. You need a lot more kinds of information to do that. A lot more of the layering of these hierarchical needs, of these hierarchical controls, you see. But if you could hit on everybody within the collective unconscious, the idea of the collective unconscious, then you you have an, a means and in inroads to manipulate mass numbers of people all at the same time. And you may not get the same results from different people, but you're going to get results and you're going to get a generalization of the type of result you want by presenting these images to people. And I'm probably explaining this poorly, <laughs> and I apologize for that. I'm doing my best. Sometimes it's hard to find the correct language to describe how invasive this control is, as they've said themselves here. How much freedom of choice do you really have? Well, this is what they would call, using this this model of the human being as, as a biocomputer, they would call this metaprogramming, you see. So they, they have this process where they could, uh, you know, control certain metaprograms that that you're fed and through these metaprograms you will perform a function of some in some way shape or form and as a response to this and it may not be a precise function but it's still a function in the right direction that they're looking for you see so that's why they like to use these types of models of as of man as a biocomputer of sorts because they could give you inputs and measure the outputs cybernetics principles once again so once they know what the input is and they see what the output is then they could fine-tune through these methods of feedback you see 
and then they could fine-tune their results how they see fit by adjusting the inputs they give you based upon the outputs you give back. So it's it's kind of an insidious thing when it comes down to it when you're talking about controlling human behavior in this way. This this applies to anything. You could use cybernetics methodologies for anything and achieve results. And they they know this and they've done this. That's why they they put stuff like this together. They understand, okay, well, if we present image A, then we get we noticed that we got this reaction from this, you know, different uh, section of society and this from that other section section of society so we might need to fine-tune something to get the same reaction from both so this is how they operate things and this is why we were always being presented with these new variations on the same old mythological archetypes you see in society and this comes in many ways notably entertainment and news and media media is the big thing media any type of media any dissemination of information that's controlled by a you know a, a small group of people disseminated largely this is one of their preferred mediums for spreading the these types of images as we see going on all around us every day but uh, let's go ahead and we'll continue with the reading here man as process if the vision of the perennial philosophy is at all valid, this center is the only truly static image. All of the other images of the human which depict how the self manifests are but temporary, ever-changing attributes of that self. As Norbert Wiener in 1954 observed, going to pause for a moment there, folks, Norbert Wiener was the guy who coined the term cybernetics. As Norbert Wiener in 1954 observed, quote, We are not stuff that abides, but patterns that perpetuate themselves, whirlpools of water in an ever-flowing river, end quote. How can the vision of the static self, hidden in all things, be usefully reconciled with the many visions of the quasi-static, but in reality changing visions of the visible self that we call a person? If the collective wisdom of the myths of various cultures is to be trusted, the way of reconciliation is illuminated by the image of the center. And that's according to Eliad in 1952. And that actually, folks, was a book called The Sacred and the Profane, which I have in my digital library, which we may cover here some other night. The idea of, quote, moving from where we are not to where we most truly are, end quote, is well expressed in a now archaic meaning of the word weird. The Anglo-Saxon word weird, spelled W-Y-R-D, being the origin point, which is a word related to the German werden, to become, standing in the direct contrast to the Indian notion of dharma or current Western notions of socialization or conditioning, both of which see the individual as necessarily subject to the law imposed by society, weird is an unfolding from within of what is potential. Note that this is also the essential meaning of the root word educer to bring forth as something latent from which our word educate derives. In this image of reality, as with Eliot's from 1935, what, and this is what Eliot said, Eliot's 1935 musing, quote, still point 
of the turning world, where past and future are gathered, end quote. The metaphysical ground of the person and what has brought him forth are one and the same. To realize this center of one's being is said to provide conceptual release from the tyranny of such polarities as creator and creature, good and evil, I and thou, and freedom and determinism. But as all outward manifestations or partial images partake equally of this center, we find that we now have the conceptual framework for an image of humankind which, as we shall see, comes very close to satisfying the characteristics we earlier postulated. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So notice, once again, they're using these metaphysical ideas of the self, you see, the center of the self. This would be the ego, as described in the various secret schools. They use other terms as well, but this is the, the I, or the I am, the ego. This is what we would say is the true, unchangeable uh, foundation of who we consider ourselves, of the self, the designated self. And this is key to examining new images of man, a new future image of man as we'll see here, examining the new image for conceptual feasibility. If one agrees that the thrust of evolution seems to be toward greater consciousness, i.e. increasing organization of the biosystem with awareness as the psychological equivalent or complementary aspect of that organization, the above framework provides the needed imagery for evolutionary growth, direction, and a holistic sense of meaning of life. It gives an open-ended and experimental sense of something to grow towards, both personally and culturally, pursuit of higher states of awareness, increasing ability to integrate knowledge, and to coordinate and balance the relative needs of the subsystem, system, and supersystem relationships, and exploration of personal, interpersonal, and transpersonal aspects of existence. Each of these contributes to the emergence of an ecological ethic and a self-realization ethic to coordinate satisficing and to goals of ephemeralization that are consistent with limits to growth of materialism. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. They like to use these big words. So essentially, they're talking about this uh, idea of ecological ethic and self-realization ethic. Those are the two goals here. What's the ecological ethic? Well, you know, don't we see this new green movement going on, the Agenda 2030s and such? You see, it all has origins back with these types of ideas here. It, it's a framework going forward, self-realization ethic and the ecological ethic as two of the means through which they will, you know, try to imprint this new image on society at large. But uh, let's continue reading here. The term thrust has been chosen to describe this progress towards greater complexity and consciousness, not to denote the goal of ev evolution, but rather the path it seems to take. Goal is a term which is associated with the conceptual paradigm of linear causality. It is this paradigm that somehow must be transcended, if only in part. It is for this reason, also, that we have singled out Dunn's term, process teleology, because it explicitly avoids the difficulties of the older concepts of vitalism and teleology. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. 
they like to use a lot of these big fancy words because you see they're a bunch of egotistical eggheads who think they're better than you and they know more than you and they're so much smarter than you and they should have control over you they should be able to tell you what to do because you're just a dumb animal when it comes down to it they know what's best for you they've studied this stuff they're so intellectual right these are the kinds of words and stuff that they use to describe various different aspects of human behavior and you know different uh, modalities of things but let's continue reading here so that uh, we could wrap this up very soon here the whole point of that last paragraph here was once again the whole plausible deniability factor they say they use the word thrust to uh, you know denote the the description of this progress towards greater complexity and consciousness not that they're trying to impose their will on people no <laughs> that's not what the implication is right wink wink nudge nudge but let's read on to illustrate how the holistic image portrayed by this framework could adequately incorporate and reconcile the more specialized images of humankind at various levels of development, some additional discussion is necessary. We postulate that each of the various specialized images that were presented earlier in this book in Chapter 2 and displayed in various figures given here are appropriate to a given context or situation that has repeatedly been in human experience which is why they exist in the image repertory of various cultures. We further observe that to the extent which the person cannot manifest in an appropriate situation, any of the various ways of being connoted by the gradient of awareness, to the extent the person is deficient in ways that limit his flexibility in dealing with a changing environment, hence limit the survival potential of the race. The ability to fight effectively, physically or psychologically, when one's survival, physical or mental, is threatened. The ability to experience aesthetic pleasure, to marvel at the mystery of existence, and to transcend one's individuality in a direct sense of participation in that mystery when appropriate. Each of these is part of the human experience through which each of us should be able to flow in and out as fitting. The point is not that one should necessarily fight, cooperate, or meditate in any or in all circumstances, nor should one necessarily impugn others for so doing, but rather that one should be able to do and accept others doing any of these things when they fit. All partake of the center. Needless to say, trade-offs are involved and coordination of different behaviors is required. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. <clears throat> Let me read those last two sentences here again. Well, that it's one sentence, really. Let me read that again. Needless to say, trade-offs are involved and coordination of different behaviors is required. What does that mean? Well, it means, hey, everybody should have the chance to achieve these different types of evolutionary states of being, right? These different... Uh, levels of spiritual awareness they should have the freedom to partake of these things how they see fit uh, but uh, you know needless to say sometimes there's trade-offs that get involved and uh, we need to coordinate different behaviors that's that's a necessary thing so they're, they're talking about it's necessary for them to try to manipulate the masses in certain directions at times 
See, it's the plausible deniability, you know, combined with the justification for their actions that they know are immoral, right? Moral relativism rules the day. This is what they were talking about earlier when they were talking about this, uh, what did they call it, hidden morality in the methods used here. But let's continue reading. As Jonas Salk in 1973 has observed, quote, the conflict in the human realm is now between self-expression and self-restraint within the individual as the effect of cultural evolutionary process has reduced external restraint upon the individual, end quote. While easy mobility across the various levels portrayed by the gradient of awareness is clearly in the interests of the survival of the human race and of the fulfillment of each individual's potentialities, such freedom needs to be exercised by the restraint that can derive in our era only from a holistic perspective of life, growth, and evolution. For these reasons, we emphasize the need for development of imagery of person as in process for a vision of growth not as in getting above persons at one level after another, as some occultists are wont to do, but rather in the expansion of awareness in both more and and less inclusive directions in the gaining of choices of appropriate behaviors that partake of all levels but are coordinated by the more inclusive ones and in learning to dissolve fixations at any given level hence being more able continuously to flow from a predominant orientation at one level to one at another according to the needs of the environment and inappropriately coordinated growth and i'm going to pause for a moment there folks whole lot of word salad there but essentially what they're saying is uh hey we're emphasizing that there's this need for the development of a new image for mankind to latch onto, a growth-based image one that will allow people to experience different levels of consciousness and awareness or less levels of of consciousness and awareness either one they're free to do either you see uh so it's the gaining of choices of appropriate behaviors that partake of all levels but are coordinated by the more inclusive ones so see we're gonna call the shots here we're the more inclusive people we'll allow these lesser people that may or may not understand some of these things to maybe be able to partake in 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 some different things if they choose to do so or they could choose you know the the level of lesser consciousness if they choose to uh, but we'll if they if they choose to go the direction of trying to learn the higher consciousness levels then we're going to direct them you see we're in control of that we have the say this is the whole attitude of the secret society groups too all right if you want access to this information you got to go through us we'll tell you what's right and what's wrong that's what's being delineated here it's all about coordinated growth they don't want you to get at a level above them and they they go ahead and they actually have the audacity to say as some occultists are wont to do it's the same thing right they're they're calling out some occultists as being the ones that want to maintain this level of power or superiority over another level here of people but yet they're doing the same thing and they have the audacity to call out the occultists oh those wacky occultists uh news for you folks the people that are involved in this study many of them are occultists themselves or were in the case of this study because this study is nearly 50 years old now and we've seen the methods that they talk about here 
used against us as a blueprint here for things we've seen over the course of the past several decades now when we look back. But uh, let's continue reading here, and I'm going to wrap it up. It is primarily in the above sense that we believe that a holistic image, such as the framework depicts, could adequately integrate the various aspects and past images of humankind without blurring or invalidating their uniqueness, for only in this way will we have an ontological basis for tolerance of difference and change. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Why do you think everything's about tolerance? Tolerance and inclusivity and all of those magical buzzwords that they use. It's all about feeling like you belong, right? It's all about representation. It's all about inclusivity. It's all about acceptance. It's all about tolerance, right? Why do you think that that's come to be such a thing in this modern era? These people laid out the foundation for it in 1974 in this book, in this Stanford Institute study, which was actually taken and implemented as policy. But let's read on. There are some difficulties with the framework as presented above. The main one is that is this. In keeping with the dominant conceptual paradigm of Western culture, especially hierarchical in nature, thus not only is the conception somewhat culture-bound, it does not easily integrate newly emerging mutual causal thoughts in science. Other cultures have dominated conceptual paradigms that are essentially non-hierarchical and are more mutualistic as regards knowledge, ecology, and human development. As the anthropologist Mara Yuma has pointed out, many functions of concern to a society are more usefully fulfilled by non-hierarchically structured paradigms. But Marayuma also notes that when a hierarchical or self-righteous and a mutualistic symbiotic paradigm have come into intercultural contact, the self-righteous paradigm has an almost irresistible tendency to run over the mutualistic one. A somewhat different but related problem arises in connection with the exclusivist interpretation the Judeo-Christian tradition has put on transcendental images of man. There appears to be a basic contradiction contained in this tradition between the exclusivist, as in no man cometh to the Father but through me, and the universalist, God as omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, therefore all that is, is God, the exclusivist is the tendency that has captured the popular imagination in the mainstream religious traditions of our culture. But this turns out to be not, much, not so much one side of a contradiction as one arm of a dialectic, one element of a paradox. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Why do you think the controllers of this world have such a problem with Christianity? This is exactly why they're telling you in a nutshell, because they believe in the... Uh, new agey concept that God is everything and we are part of God and we are God, you see. And if we have a religious ideology that stands in the way that says there's only one way to the Father and it's this way, well, that causes a problem for their ecumenical type of organization into a one-world religion or one-world philosophy, doesn't it? Jesus himself said, I will be a stumbling block before these people. 
And he most certainly is. He's the, the great stumbling block for these occultists, these dark occultists who run things. They see this as a, not only a contradiction, but as what they call a paradox here. All right. So it's a dialectic. So they've transformed it into a dialectic. Whereas, you know, this religious ideology says there's one way, and this other one says there's numerous ways. You see, in order to have numerous ways and have this be accurate, they would have to accept that the people that say that there's just this one way. But they don't, do they? That, that's the whole problem. There's always this contention, you see. If there's many ways, then no big deal, right? If there's one way, then, you know, that, that's the other side of the coin here. So they use it as a dialectic argument. So you have those that say there's many ways to God, and you have the ones that say there's only one way to God, you see. But those that say there's many ways would then have to, if they truly believe that there's many ways, would have to accept those people that think there's only one way. And, you know, be accepting of that as part of the overall big picture. But there's not. It always creates conflict. And this is exactly why, because it causes this paradoxical way of thinking. So they use it in the terms of a dialectic. So they use it as a method of control, you see. Anything that they could turn into a dialectic, they control. They turn it into a control screen control scheme of sorts because they play both ends of the spectrum both of the extremes as we discussed earlier with the political parties you see and any of the extremes the ends the extreme ends this represents the transpersonal and that takes away from the individual you see so this creates more of a dichotomy of thought and a, a problem. So it creates this paradox. But they use paradoxes. They teach with paradoxes. And they manipulate using these ideologies. But let's continue on and we're going to wrap it up. We're just about done. Better understood, these difficulties turn out to be based in misunderstandings, which is not to say that they will not be very real difficulties in a communication or political sense, they arise from having to use traditional language to express what are essentially non-traditional, non-paradigm concepts. Thus, we have used words such as gradient, thrust, and hierarchy when describing the evolutionary trend toward greater complexity and consciousness. We have used diagrams and tables which may seem to imply progression from primitive to sophisticated or lower to higher, this may seem to imply an elitist view of human evolution. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. It most certainly does, doesn't it? That's because the elitists do have an elitist view of evolution. They think they're more evolved than you. The people that wrote this think they're more evolved than you. They're so much smarter and better. They know better. They're at a higher level than you, you see. Uh, and... You know, that's why they, they use these types of terms, and they have the audacity here to say, this may seem to imply an elitist view of human evolution. <laughs> most certainly it does. It doesn't seem to, it most certainly does. But uh, let's continue reading. It might have been helpful to adopt a circular model in which, for example, the dreaming man of young would be cyclically linked to the superconscious man in a visional system that implied ongoing process. But substituting one metaphor or visual image for another simply seemed to change the nature of the difficulty. The problem appears to be primarily that reality is so much richer 
so much more multidimensional than any metaphor that all maps of reality lead to difficulties if they are mistakenly assumed to be literally true. Thus, reality is hierarchical in one sense and not in another, and man is separate, seeking self-fulfillment, and yet part of a unity in a sense that makes self-fulfillment illusory. The higher forms of consciousness may be similar to the psychic abilities of lower forms of life, for example, household pets, dolphins, plants, etc., in a way that makes the latter as sophisticated as the highest transcendental characteristics evolving in the human species. Thus, it would appear that an emergent worldwide image of humankind satisfying the conditions identified earlier is conceptually feasible, providing we remain clear that it is an image or a set of metaphors and that its real function is to lead toward the direct experiencing of what it can only incompletely and inadequately express. Because this is where the rubber meets the road with it. So they talk about the operational feasibility of a new image of man. We want now to examine the conditions under which a new image of man might emerge to a commanding position in the society. One condition inherent in the fundamental characteristics that we discussed in chapter 5 is that it probably cannot be engineered or manipulated into such a position. Safer, at any rate, is a process whereby the new image is fostered by some and resisted by others, such that the principles of checks and balances and of creative synthesis of differences are allowed to operate. Essentially, we shall, number one, review the process through which both cultures and persons appear to evolve in response to crisis. Number two, Draw inferences as to how transformational discovery and the emergence of a new image of man can appropriately or inappropriately be fostered. Did you catch that? Appropriately or inappropriately be fostered? Number three, consider various indications that personal and institutional transformation and the emergence of moral paradigms are feasible without being caused to happen. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. The word caused is in that different font than the rest of the writing. So they they made emphasis of the word caused here. And that to me is coded language. Of course they want to claim, you know, they, they don't want to be the cause of anything. But this is essentially their nod and wink to the idea of causing these changes in mankind through the use of crisis, as fostered in the, uh, the first point here. Let's read on evolutionary transformation in response to crisis. It seems clear that today we are living in an ecological system in which higher order systems coordinate the interactions of lower order subsystems, an ecology in which there is an increasing ability of higher organisms to make symbolic maps of reality, to test and to improve those maps. Thus, in the evolutionary battle for survival, it may be possible for our ideas to die in our stead. In the evolution from phylogenesis, which is the natural selection through mutation and genetic recombination, through ontogenesis, which is the ability of a highly developed organism to reprogram itself within limits and modify its behavior to suit environmental changes, 
To sociogenesis, the accumulation of acquired behavior through symbolic communication, the trend that stands out is the power and utility of consciousness. This manifests itself as the ability to map the various dimensions of existence, both physical and symbolic, and to use those maps for, quote, behavior directed to changing behavior, end quote. And that's quoted from Dunn, 1972. So as you can see, these people are all about manufacturing human behavior. You see, steering human behavior through whatever means necessary here. A crisis is often the catalyst for the redrawing of one's preferred map. Inasmuch as this is precisely the direction in which our culture appears to be heading, it is useful to review the processes of crisis-oriented transformation in other cultures, in science, in mythology, in persons. All these may contain insights that could prove applicable to the resolution of our difficulties. There's the admission here. They call it a map, okay? This image of man that they're giving us, they're referring to it here as a map now. And they will give you this map this transformational map, in the forms of science, mythology, you see, culture. So let's read on here, and then we're going to wrap it up, because we're going to cover just the uh, cultural transformations here. This is the next section, cultural transformations. What happens when, because of environmental changes, military defeat, or intercultural invasion, e.g. by a new technology, a culture no longer adequately serves its essential functions. If the degree of perceived crisis is not too great, the classic processes of cultural change, and it says in parentheses here, evolution, drift, diffusion, historical change, acculturation, take place. If, on the other hand, the degree of perceived crisis is acute, cultural transformation is likely to occur rapidly going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, once again, we see a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. If the degree of a crisis is considered to be acute, or if it's perceived to be an acute crisis, a major crisis, cultural transformation is likely to occur rapidly. Let's read on, keeping that in mind, looking back at the events of the past two and a half, almost three years now. The anthropologist Anthony F.C. Wallace, in 1956, in a comparative study of the crisis-motivated type of cultural change, derived a series of idealized stages through which many such transformations, if successful, have passed. Especially relevant for our purposes are Wallace's findings on how images of the role of self and society have changed in other societies in response to crisis. He discovered that unlike classic culture change, the process of revitalization requires explicit intent by members of the society and often takes place within one generation. Going to pause for a second here, folks. You catch that? One generation generation to completely change the culture. What do you think was done to us the past two and a half, three years? It may not be our generation, the vast majority of you who listen are roughly around my age range. It may not be our generation that will be significantly changed, but it is certainly the generation of our children and our grandchildren, that one generation, the young generation coming up now, that will be forever changed from how our culture once was. 
let's go ahead and read on. So it says here they're quoting from uh, this this Wallace gentleman whose study I think it was in 1956 showed. The structure of the revitalization process in cases where the full course is run consists of somewhat overlapping stages. Stage 1 is the steady state. Stage 2 is the period of individual stress. Stage 3 is the period of cultural distortion. And stage 4 is the period of revitalization in which the functions of maze way, reformulation, communication, organization, adaptation, cultural transformation, and routinization and finally, stage five, the new steady state. Keep those in mind. This is a roadmap, folks, for how they fundamentally change a culture using a crisis. So phase one is the steady state. That would be what the normal day-to-day routine is for everybody. That's the, the ho-hum, the steady old, this is the way society was, and it was functioning. Then stage two is the period of individual stress. They locked everyone in their houses and uh, they went ahead and threatened their jobs, forced vaccinated many, uh, did a lot of heinous things in the name of the quote-unquote greater good. This was the period of individual stress. Then the third phase was the period of cultural distortion, which onset rather rapidly with the second phase there. And we see now the culture was, you know, kind of policing itself, right? Or you can't come in here without a mask. Do you have your, your vaccine certification so you could come eat in the restaurant? And, you know, all of these different ideas, you see, it changed the culture. Now, the culture is forever changed because everywhere you go, there's still all this stupid plexiglass up all over the place, isn't there? Even though much of the masking and stuff like that hasn't hasn't really stayed with much of the country. You still come across stragglers out there that do so. But this is number this is part, portion number three. Cultural distortion. You see, they've they've transformed the, the society's way of behaving. Then the fourth period is the period of revitalization. And in this case, we haven't quite got there yet to this period of revitalization because the period of revitalization that they have planned for us is the Great Reset. This is what they're looking for. This is why they are going to go ahead and try to institute a central bank digital currency system now. The whole stupid big shebang, the new world order, all the stuff we've been hearing and talking about for years. One world currency, one world government, one world religion, all this stuff. The vaccine passports, the digital IDs, the social credit score, the whole nine yards. All of that is part of their period of revitalization that they have planned for us. I hope that we have somewhat thwarted those plans and actually have a real revitalization happen where we could maybe restore our society in some way, shape, or form to something greater than it was. But this is what they have planned for us. So they have their great reset, and then that will introduce stage five, the new steady state, the new normal, you see. So they have their great reset to bring about the new normal. Do you understand all five of these phases outlined right here? We've been watching them do it in front of our eyes. And it's all based upon these ideas. So let's continue on, and I'm just going to finish up this last 
portion here. The key element in the process of transformation is what Wallace terms, quote unquote, the maze way, which the following shows is almost synonymous with our term image of man in the universe, the maze way. Remember the term maze way, okay? which essentially means the image of man in the universe. Quote, It is functionally necessary for every person in society to maintain a mental image of the society and its culture, as well of, of his own body and its behavioral regularities, in order to act in ways which reduce stress at all levels of the system. The person does, in fact, maintain such an image, this mental image I have called the maze way, since as a model of the cell body, personality, nature, culture, society, system, or field, organized by the individual's own experience, it includes perceptions of both the maze of physical objects in the environment, internal and external, human and non-human, and also of the ways in which this maze can be manipulated by the self and others in order to minimize stress. The maze way is nature, society, culture, personality, and body image as seen by one person. Changing the maze way involves changing the total gestalt of his image of self, society, and culture, of nature and body, and of ways of action. It may also be necessary to make changes in the, in, this is in quotation marks, folks, real system in order to bring mazeway and real system into congruence. The effort to work a change in mazeway and real system together so as to permit more effective stress reduction is the effort of a revitalization and the collaboration of a number of persons in such an effort is called a revitalization movement end quote so in this we have the foundations of what's been done to us through this scamdemic the past several years it's the changing of the maze way idea you see you change the image, you change the man. That's essentially what's being done here. So in sometimes they acknowledge here in order to make the necessary changes to the image, you have to put these causes in place in the environment so that these changes will come in the image first. And then to the man himself you see, in order to change society, first you have to change the society's image of itself at first. And what have they done the past two and a half, nearly three years now with this whole scamdemic? They've completely changed the cultural view of the world, of man at large, of himself, you see. Man has been conditioned to believe he's a plague upon the earth, that uh, the mere act of breathing causes death and destruction in its wake for mankind. Th these are the types of ideas that are inherent in the image they've given us. Man is flawed, you see. Nature is flawed. This is the image they've given us. They want us to believe that man is flawed, nature is flawed, the world is flawed, the climate's all out of whack, Everything's a crisis. Everything's a problem. And we need a solution to that problem. They have the solution, in their view, their great reset, which leads a step closer into 
transhumanism, the merging of man with machine, man becoming God himself and fixing the broken earth here as he sees it in his hubris, man becoming God, the apotheosis of the race. You notice they always use the race in all of this stuff. The race. Much like all the occult philosophies, same old story all throughout all of it. But understand this maze way idea. Let's finish this up here. Whether the revitalization movement is religious or secular, the reformulation seems to depend on a restructuring of elements and subsystems which have already attained currency in the society and may even be in use. The occasion of their combination in a form which constitutes an internally consistent structure and of their acceptance by the prophet as a guide to action is abrupt and dramatic, usually occurring as a moment of insight, a brief period of re realization of relationships and opportunities. The reformulization also seems normally to occur in its initial form in the mind of a single person rather than to grow directly out of a group deliberations. After Maysway reformulation comes adaption, cultural transformation, and routinization, during which the idealism of the original vision is modified in response to cultural feedback. It tends to be preserved only in those areas where the movement maintains responsibility for the preservation of doctrine and performance of ritual. In other words, it becomes a church, whether religious or secular. And I'm going to end it right there, folks. Look at what's been done to society. Look at how society's been transformed. Look at the ritual process that they've put in place with this scamdemic situation. It's all right here in black and white. The blueprints outlined right here in this book, Changing Images of Man. They're seeking to change mankind's image of himself, you see. If man thinks he's a plague upon the earth, he thinks very little of himself. And, uh, you know, then there's this other image they're also presenting of the post-human, that evolved being that's greater than man, that can solve all of mankind's problems, the realization thereof is through self-guided evolution, through the use of technology, transhumanism to become the post-human, the man-god, the god-man, apotheosis of the race, those of us that are left anyway, it's all these same things. They're all echoed through the secret society groups, through the occult teachings, through the policy think tank papers written by these anthropologists and these important noteworthy scientists and social controllers in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and on up. And even people before that. All these ideas are outlined and written down before and we have an actual roadmap. We have a methodology here laid out in this book. How they intended to change man's image of himself. And they, they do so through the use of mythology archetypes. You see, why were we presented the pandemic? Well, I wrote a whole book about that. The pandemic. The demic of pan. You see, it's the archetype, the mythological archetype to transform mankind into something else to transform our culture to change it anyway so 
that's the whole premise here. We could all we have to do is is read these dry, boring books and white papers and stuff that these people put out years ago. And I'm talking this is going back almost five decades. This is like a 48-year-old document now. Close to 50 years old. And they outlined verbatim the things that we have seen happen in society today in an escalated fashion. It's in hyperdrive. You see, they, they had to push the timeline forward of their plans. And this is how they do it. They introduce the crisis, as seen here, in order to bring about the cultural revolution. So <laughs> that's the whole point here. They've completely transformed our society. They've changed us in a very short time. And like it said in the book here, one generation, that's it. That is rapid change. They've, they've transformed this world, and it'll be complete in one generation. So that doesn't give us an awful lot of time to uh, try to find some alternatives to the things they've laid out here. That's why it's important that we speak out about this stuff, point this stuff out, make sure people understand what exactly has been done. There, there's a level of planning behind all of this that people just don't want to, to, to see, that there are people in positions of power in this world that act upon occult ideas and occult principles and manipulate the masses with them. That they do nefarious things like introduce a crisis to the world in order to change the world rather rapidly. Because let's face it, their, their goals and stuff that they have they had set up, they're years behind on them. They had to change Agenda 21 to Agenda 2030, for example. They had to add 30 years to their timeline to try to get stuff done. And they're up against the wall with that now, too. So they're pushing even harder. So that's why they'll introduce the crisis. Because they know the crisis can bring about rapid change in society, in the culture. So it's been weaponized. Uh, so whatever your thoughts are on the nature of this scamdemic that we just lived through... Keep in mind, it doesn't matter whether it was a real crisis or a contrived crisis. The point is, it was a crisis, and they use these crises all the time. Especially, we, we see it going on, everything's a crisis right now, right? Everything, uh, you know, railroad strike and this and that and the other thing, it's a crisis. Major crisis, we have to deal with this crisis, that crisis. There's a war in Ukraine crisis. And that's another farcical thing, folks, but uh, <laughs> that's a topic for another day. But uh, at any rate... We can see how they utilize these things to make rapid change in our culture. And they've successfully done so to a certain degree. You, like I said, it's, it's forever changed the face of what society here looks like. Now you go out and you'll, you'll see some wackadoodles wearing masks. Still, to this day, you'll see that plexiglass still up everywhere. You'll see the stupid signs hanging all over. You'll see the residue of the stickers on the floor that were telling you to walk one way. Do you remember all the nonsense, the ridiculousness of it all? It's still out there, and it's left a very real imprint on the minds of the very, very young. See, the next generation. Not our generation. The next generation. This will be the one that's completely transformed. Anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.